All right. Welcome to A Little Wiser. Erica and I are joined today by Dan Shaw. Dan is a psychoanalyst and author specializing in counseling former members of cultic groups and friends and family of members who are involved in cults. So, Dan, we are having you here. First of all, I have so many questions for you. (laughs) We were introduced to you by last week's guest, Sarah Edmondson, who was a survivor of Nexium. And yeah, yeah, we're just excited to dive in and learn more about your work and this fascinating topic in general. I guess first, how did you come to specialize in working with cult survivors and focusing your therapy on this very specific need? Right. Well, like about 99% of the people who are considered to be cult experts, I am a cult survivor. So I spent 13 years, all of my 30s and a little more, in the City Yoga Meditation Group that was started by Swami Muktananda, who was brought here by none other than Werner Erhardt, who is the founder of EST and Landmark Forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muktananda came to the States in the 70s. I met him in the mid-80s. And uh, I got totally hooked. He, he was, I was an actor in my 20s. And I had professionally trained and I worked professionally, but I didn't work very much. I was pretty hard. It was pretty hard to manage a career where I was getting so much rejection and scrambling to make a living. Marsha Mason and some other celebrities were running a program for people in the theater community about meditation. And it was up at a ashram in upstate New York. And I said, all right, I'll go. And um, it was fantastic. I loved it. We had a beautiful afternoon in this lovely place where everything smelled good and tasted good. And I found out there was a center right in my neighborhood in the Upper West Side. I started going every night to meditate and chant. And then I I felt as though I, I had found a community of people who were doing something really lovely and beautiful and meaningful and healing. I got more and more involved. I had some profound mystical experiences. And next thing I know, I'm full-time living and working. So I spent 13 years all together, full-time working and living in this community. I traveled all around the world as a missionary for the group for many years sometimes with others, sometimes just myself. And in the last five years of my involvement, I was pretty unhappy, but I, I, I kept blaming myself for my unhappiness, which is what everybody in a cult will do because that's what you're told is wrong. Not Nothing is wrong with the cult or the leader. It's just you. You're the one who's wrong. So it took me five years to finally say, you know what? I'm not wrong. This is wrong, and this guru is wrong. And that's when I left. And literally, like that month, I was also, 
I had an, I, I had met the woman I married eventually in, by that time. And I had started a, a social work degree program, a master's in social work to become a psychotherapist. I really began working with other survivors when I put an essay I wrote online. The name of the essay is Traumatic Abuse in Cults. I put that essay online. I got my master's degree with a, a license to practice psychotherapy. And almost the minute I put it online, people started contacting me. I, I practiced full-time in private practice. Probably 20, 25% of my practice is cult survivors since the day I began. Because I myself am a cult survivor. And all of the people who are, like I say, 99% of cult experts, and I know almost all of them all around the world, actually, are themselves cult survivors. It makes so much sense for this podcast because so many of our guests find a purpose out of their deepest pain. So the fact that you went through so much trauma, pain, and hurt, and that now a big portion of your work is dedicated to healing and helping others makes a lot of sense to us. <laughs> so it's so interesting. Working on this episode brought up a lot of feelings for me uh, because I am also a cult survivor. And the cult that I was in was religious Judaism. I okay. went to rabbinical school. I was convinced that that was going to be my path. I suspect that the general population wouldn't pair the two together as, you know, religious Judaism being a cult. But, and I, I didn't either until I kind of went to rabbinical school and, and saw behind what I call the great wizard of Oz, you know, saw behind the curtain and right. there was no there there. And yeah. I just, my world came crashing down when I thought, okay, I can't go through with this, but now what? And it seemed like <laughs> there was this vast emptiness and, and a hole that needed to be filled. And so I, I'm aware that there are many groups or situations like myself where perhaps we don't see that group as a quote-unquote cult, but would you say the behaviors are very similar and and where are perhaps some other places where we might notice those types of behaviors? Great. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, I grew up as a secular Jew with parents who were very progressive. And the last thing on earth they would have thought would happen for me is that I would end up in a religious cult. And there are cults on the spectrum from highly destructive to insanely destructive, let's put it that way. Or, you know, in other words, what I think distinguishes a cult is uh, the leadership of the group, okay? Because a lot of groups have a charismatic leader who's very influential and prominent and looked up to, but if the group is a cult, it will have a stated purpose which never gets achieved. So if the, if my group wanted to achieve enlightenment and, and a more peaceful world, 
we all thought that was our mission. And as, and, you know, in rabbinical school, I believe your mission is to bring faith and healing to a community, you know, in search of spiritual guidance, right? When, when the group's actual, um, functioning revolves around the self-aggrandizement of the leader, which is the case in the group I was in, and nothing else. In other words, no other accomplishment happens in the group I was in other than elevating, enriching, glorifying, and empowering the leader. That is a cult. But what further makes a group a cult is is the fact that you're asked to devote every single aspect of yourself to the mission of the group and you are being subjugated and controlled. You're being belittled, intimidated, and humiliated as a means of controlling you. That's when you're in a cult. You know, an organization like the military, maybe they use belittling as part of the bonding rituals, but there is a system of justice. You can take your case up somewhere to be heard if you have a grievance. In a cult, there is no grievance that anybody ever wants to hear because the, the, the leader is perfect. When you are faced with constantly being pressured, belittled, intimidated, humiliated, you, you accept it as what you have to do to fulfill the mission. It's a, um, it's a, it's a psychological induction of a kind of regression to a, a, almost like a childlike state of dependence. Thank you for that very clear and, and detailed definition. I'm curious, you know, I know you talk and write a lot about leaders having this, this traumatic narcissism. So yeah. what is the psychological profile of a cult leader? You know, I love that question. There is a profile. And when you study the biographies of some of the big famous cult leaders, you see a, a theme. The theme is that they experience tremendous humiliation and shame in their upbringing. So I'll just use one example. The Japanese nerve gas guru, Shoko Asahara, he controlled a group of academics and scientists and persuaded them that the world needed to be purified and that to begin to do that, they would release sarin nerve gas in the Tokyo subways, which they did. He was arrested and he was put on trial. His upbringing is a, is a classic case. He had disabilities growing up. He was brutally mocked and teased as a child. He then tried as a young adult unsuccessfully to run a bunch of businesses. Same story with Keith Raniere, by the way. Running these multi-level marketing businesses that got defrauded and busted. And he reinvented himself at some point in his life as this guru. For me, what that says is this person develops a psychotic delusion of their own omnipotence. 
they actually, in order to actually overcome the shame and humiliation of how much they have failed, their own sense of failure, they develop a psychotic delusion about being omnipotent. And that then gives them charisma and power and persuasion, and they start to get followers. And the more followers they get, the more their delusion of omnipotence is bolstered. So they get more powerful and they get more followers. And what happens with these people is what happened to Shoko Asahara. Once he was apprehended, held in prison, and put on trial, he was publicly humiliated. And he literally became schizophrenic as a result of the public humiliation. So what these cult leaders are doing is hiding from themselves and from the world their extreme, destabilized, chaotic internal world. And when they are exposed and publicly humiliated, you see their psychosis. This is the arc for almost all of the major cult leaders that have been, you know, made famous in the media because of the disasters that happened with their groups. I mean, with Keith Raniere in particular, his parents were really encouraging this type of thinking, that he was a genius, that, you know, he his IQ was off the charts, he was special, and he really took that message to heart. Right, but... but if- but if you notice um, uh, him, any pictures of him when he's younger, he just looks so greasy and schlubby. He looks like so, <laughs> such a loser, right? And I think he must have grown up feeling some kind of a dissonance between being perceived as a loser and thinking he's a genius. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he solves that problem when he gets a hold of the Bronfmans with their money. And they can put all kinds of money into him, his appearance. They can, you know, and, and with that money, suddenly he can, he can really let that delusion of omnipotence go. Right? He was developing it all along, but once that money came in, boy, that did it. So you've, you've mapped out sort of the, definition, the detailed definition of what defines a cult, the psychological profile of occult leaders. I want to understand more about the victims of cults. And I think there's a tendency, we've interviewed a fair amount of survivors on this podcast, for people to listen and say, oh, not me. You know, I would never fall for that, you know, feeling (laughs) very separate and other which I imagine is part of the shame as people come out. Oh, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, for those listening who say, how do well-meaning, intelligent people end up in a cult? What is the what is the answer? Most of the people who end up in cults are bright. They're usually college educated. They're often from middle class or upper class backgrounds. In, in my cult, in City Yoga, there were so many celebrities and children of celebrities and trust fund kids and so on. So, you know, it's not dysfunctional people. It's smart, sharp, intelligent, attractive people who are well-spoken because those are the people that the cults want. They're going to be the recruiters for the 
for more people like them. But I do think there is a, either a situational vulnerability in the moment when people are introduced to these kinds of groups, or there are vulnerabilities in their life story, like my parent was an alcoholic, or my parent died when I was young, or my sibling had a disability, or, you know, something that you've struggled with growing up that has left you with, you know, some vulnerabilities, certain kind of idealism or hopefulness or longing, sensitivity. These are the things that lead people to get involved in what would seem like a benign community of people seeking to support and nurture each other towards, you know, meaningful goals. Every cult wants to look that way. It's it's clear that it's only after leaving these groups do people identify that they were part of a cult. So I think Absolutely. the trajectory of that makes a ton of sense. You're saying it's this intersection of where a person is in their life emotionally mm-hmm. and psychologically with really, really bad timing, this group who is manipulating. And once they're sucked into this notion of a higher mission and good and enlightenment and being, you know, and I want to talk about brainwashing in a bit, but yeah, that makes a ton of ton of sense to me. Erica, do you want to chime in? Yeah. Sarah mentioned in, in her interview that we seem to be in what she referred to as the golden age of cults, meaning hmm. that we have so many cult documentaries streaming on Netflix and uh, HBO, you know, The Vow, there's there's many others out there and oh, yeah. they're riveting. People can't seem to get enough of them. So so there is there seems to be more of an awareness of these types of organizations perhaps than ever before. But I'm curious about the prevalence of cults today. Would you right. say that there's a lot of cults in existence or are they kind of masking as smaller, more nimble groups? Cults have proliferated extraordinarily in the last, uh, you know, since the 70s. There's never been a shortage of cults. But um, during the pandemic, I have never received as many phone calls about cult intervention in that period of time, never before. And I've been doing it for 25, 30 years. Wow. Um, so what we, what I take away from that is that the pandemic created a situation of isolation, fear, uncertainty. And those are very, very prime ingredients for people to start to look for answers, solutions. And, you know, what cults want to do, and I'm kind of lumping conspiracy theories into this. They're different from cults in a lot of ways, but they're similar in many ways as well. Because there, somebody tells you they have the answer. And that would be the biggest red flag, by the way, when somebody says, I have the answer to everything. <laughs> run, run as fast as you can. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is what cults are telling us and what conspiracy tells us. We have the answer. 
and people were desperate for answers during COVID. So that really boosted the cult. Now, even with all the documentaries that are available now, there will not be, uh, this will not stop cults from being in existence. They have existed as long as we know about human civilization. And they've always existed in this country and elsewhere. They just have looked differently over the years. Now there are religious cults, political cults, multi-level marketing cults, and, and many other psychotherapy cults. I'm sorry to say as a professional in that field, but it's true. And again, a cult is a cult when the leader is a traumatizing narcissist. What I mean is that this is an individual who has a shame of their own dependency, the shame of their own sense of vulnerability and weakness. In order to to absolutely deny any of that shame inside of them, they need followers because it's the followers who have to hold the shame that they deny exists within themselves. If I'm ashamed of any kind of weakness, vulnerability, any sort of dependence on anyone, what I want to do is say, I'm completely free of any dependency. I'm totally not vulnerable. I've got everything figured out, and I can help you do that. What the traumatizing narcissist has to do with these followers is he has to give them the shame and the fear. They're the ones now who are going to hold that shame and fear that he pretends not to experience. He needs them to hold it so that they depend on him. So he says, I don't depend on anybody. That's a lie. He is the neediest person in the world. And by the way, it could be she. Cult leaders are the neediest people in the world. But what they make you believe is that they don't need anyone or anything. It's you who need them. So it's a it's such a bait and switch. And that's the essence of who the traumatizing narcissist is, and every cult leader is always that guy or that woman. That is so fascinating to me. You know, there's some tactics. I know it's probably unique to each cult or organization, but certainly some that you see consistently. You know, isolation, estrangement, abusive relationships. But I think one in particular that people are fascinated by and probably don't understand because they've never or perhaps they have we have been through it and we don't know is this notion of mind control and brainwashing right first of all how do you define that and what does that look like in a cult in the context of a cult right so this kind of charismatic traumatizing narcissist is able to subtly induce a hypnotic state. And in a hypnotic state, you are receptive. And you're also what what's called dissociative. But basically, a person, uh, when they're being indoctrinated, it can happen in subtle ways or not so subtle ways. Patty Hearst was locked in a closet for two weeks, starved, raped, blindfolded, terrified. You know, when they let her out, she was ready to take up a 
a, a weapon of war and go rob a bank with them, with the Symbionese Liberation Army. Patty Hearst was brainwashed. Other forms of this are much more subtle, much more seductive, much more hypnotic. But I certainly know that when I went up to the ashram for the first time, and there was incense and color and people full of energy and excitement, it was intoxicating. I was immediately drawn into the state of intoxication slash relaxation through the meditation, which is sort of like, you know, a form of hypnosis. I went with it. It was absolutely beautiful, intoxicating, and so on. So, of course, I wanted more, especially given that I was having a hard time back then. Brainwashing, it can be violent or it can be subtle, but either way, you are basically put into a kind of a trance and everything that's suggested to you starts to make sense and feel real, and you just feel intoxicated by it, and you want more. So the more you pursue it, the more you're taking in the messages that people want you to hear. You are safe here. This is where you can grow. This is where you are loved. This is where you can fulfill your potential. You're hearing this stuff in a hypnotic kind of situation, and it just uh, sells. People are buying well-being when they get into these groups. They don't know that they're going to end up being abused and tortured and, and exploited. They, that's, that's the furthest possible thing from their mind. How and why do most people leave? I think uh, it varies, of course, in in every case, but the the common thread would be that you are exhausted and burned out. You have given yourself over and over and over in every possible way, and you've told repeatedly by the leader, it's not enough, it's not enough. You didn't give enough. And you literally have nothing left to give, and you get to a point where you start to feel sick, or either emotionally or, or in, and physically or both. I lasted in that kind of sick space for about five years before I actually left. When I look back now, I didn't know I was on the way out for those last five years, but I was increasingly miserable, frustrated, angry, exhausted, none of which I could fully admit and certainly which I had to blame on myself. So I think that's how most people end up leaving. Many people stay, but the truth is that most people get that get out of the community eventually because it's unbearable. So post-cult recovery, I just kept thinking about all of the layers of reintegration into society, learning how to trust yourself learning how yep. to trust other people, what organizations to trust, shame and secrecy, rebuilding relationships. Erica brought up a really, I think, another point that's important that I didn't think about, which Erica, will you share that? Sure. So, I mean, from my own personal experience and just as I was working through this episode with Sarah, I imagine that part of the healing journey once you leave a cult, especially one that you've been in for 
a very long time, years. Yeah. How does a person think about that time and not see it as a total waste of their life? There has to be some good pieces that came out of the experience or something that they can take with them so that it it doesn't feel entirely lost. And would you say that there are pieces like that? I think so, but it's often um, latter stages of recovery when you can start to even allow yourself to think about that. In the beginning stages, you're really trying to overcome this profound sense of shame, typically. What have I done? How do I explain this to anybody? And what do I do with these 13 years when I'm trying to get a job or when I'm trying to go to school? How do I, how do I even t- talk about this? So m- people feel so badly about the choices they made. So there's a book. The author is Yanya Lalich. It's called Take Back Your Life. It's written beautifully, and it is the book every cult expert recommends to every cult survivor because that's what you're tasked with, to try to remember who you were before you ever got into this thing and to look at your strengths, your talents, your abilities, and remember you weren't always crushed because when you leave a cult, you've been crushed. And it's crushing to leave and have to acknowledge I was so stupid, I made so many mistakes. How could I have been this gullible and so on? You know, people who are swindled, like Bernie Madoff's clients, they have to go through the same thing. Like, how did I not see it? How could I have been so stupid? And, of course, those are successful people who had tons of money and lost tons of money, maybe still had tons left. Many of us leave and are penniless. I certainly was. There's... All the logistical, practical things of life that you have to get back together. And you have to get yourself back together because you feel so stupid and ashamed and crushed. And it took me a while. I had good therapy. I had a friend who was in a 12-step program that I would call in the morning just so he could help me get out the door and go to my job when I first left. You've got to get your strength back. You've got to get your self-esteem back. You've got to get your faith in yourself back. And that's really hard. But, you know, you're really just trying to figure out how you're going to survive when you leave a cult. When you have enough bandwidth to kind of start to be more nuanced and complex in your, your view, you can see, I, I'll tell you what I could see. I got to travel all over the world. And everywhere I went, there were dozens or hundreds of people who were friendly. Now, the minute I left the cult, nobody would ever look at me or talk to me ever again. But during that time, it felt like this is a friendly, loving community. We share values. And all over the world, I was, you know, as kind of a, a spokesperson, a teacher, organizer, etc. I, I made, I, I felt like I had friends everywhere everywhere I went. So that was one of the things. And when I left the cult, I realized I've got to have real friends now that aren't just conditional. Um, and so that became part of the process of recovering, really like cherishing and valuing the people in my life 
who were there before I was in the cult, who were ready to stand by me when I left. Uh, that has meant that's meant everything, and family members as well. Although I had lost a lot of my family by the time I got out. Other good things that people got, I got I learned how to type and use computers in the ashram. So when I got out, I was able to start writing traumatic abuse and cults, traumatic narcissism, etc. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that was great. But I had a lot of uh, sweet, fun, good times when I was there. Erica, I imagine your question was motivated by your experience. <laughs> so how did you tease out the good and what stayed with you, you know, binning those things, if you will, moving forward? Well, um, you know, I lost all my friends. I lost my community. I, I disappointed a lot of people, my parents included, and it felt pretty bleak for a while. So I relate to what you were saying, but now I'm, I'm, so far removed from it at this point that I I can still feel into some of the the teachings that were meaningful to me and some of the ways that I've been able to I guess find my own sense of spirituality um, right. using lessons that that I learned about the importance of finding joy in everyday life and um, the importance of speaking your truth from the heart out loud, those types of, of practices, which, which I mm. do take with me still and have been meaningful to me. Yeah. I think Sarah, yeah. you know, she talked about and touched on this, you know, she met her husband <laughs> and, right. you know, had a, had a baby. So I do think, like anything traumatic in life, looking at the looking at the entire story while honoring the trauma, but but also acknowledging some of the things, which my guess is is also helpful as you process it and deal with shame and all those things to I, offer I, that I, perspective I, to yourself. Absolutely. It's important. You've got to rekindle you gotta learn to find compassion for yourself when you leave mm -hmm. it like this you know you were taught all your compassion is supposed to go out in 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 a cult to the leader but you're allowed to be constantly belittled and intimidated and humiliated you have to find compassion for yourself you know i met my wife in the cult and even though we're not married now i have two children that I adore that I would never, you know, I wouldn't change a thing because of them. So, um, yeah, it is important to be able to look at what you did take from it that you still have that wasn't taken from you. We've talked about all the documentaries clearly on the podcast. We've done several stories. We're all here. <laughs> Yeah. Why do you think people and the public are so fascinated by cults and drawn to these stories? You know, I, I don't know for sure what that is, but 
it must be similar to the way people are drawn to all these CSIs that, <laughs> of which there are like 20,000 different versions that are on the air 24-7. What I hope people are looking for is how to understand how somebody can come under the control and the influence of an evil person and how they can get out of it. What we saw in the in Stolen Youth, the Sarah Lawrence cult documentary, Ooh, which that is was extraordinary, a good one. it's all told from the survivor's perspective. What we saw is that those people, no matter how deeply they had been controlled, found a way, almost all of them, found a way to free themselves and and get their lives back. And that story is meaningful, I think, to most people. We've all been through something. We've all had to, you know, we've all been down and felt like we were getting kicked while we were down, and we've all had to get back up. I think people enjoy those, that part of the story. But to also, but yes, are we fascinated by watching a, a, a train wreck? I guess we are. But, um, I also think that that, those triumphant stories of people who get out and get free are inspiring, you know? Yeah. They, I, that makes sense that we love those stories. We're rooting for them. And, and, uh, very different way we've lived the story of being knocked right. down and getting back up and figuring out yeah. how to move forward. For sure. For sure. Well, Dan, thank you for your time, your knowledge. I feel significantly wiser about understanding <laughs> cults and cult survivors. And I know everyone listening will as well. So thank you again for being here and for your expertise, sharing it with us. Thank you for the really intelligent, good questions, which is always a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. It was great to meet you. Same here. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>